This is the Open School of Business, the podcast dedicated to success by delivering insightful conversations with business experts from different walks of life. Here's your host, Anaru Musakwa, entrepreneur and a project management professional. Thank you for listening to this episode. Please leave your comments and questions, rate, review, and most importantly, subscribe. Let's begin. Hello, and welcome to my podcast. Today, I'm so happy to introduce you to Dr. Ampalvi. He's the professor from GW that I had I've been lucky to also get lectures from and mentoring from. He's been at George Washington University for over 40 years, and he's a distinguished scientist in the field of cybernetics. And the course that I took personally from him was the organizational behavior and management. Uh, he taught at the School of Business at the George Washington University. And also one of the projects we did back in the day with him was about uh, developing a PhD program at the Kazakh National University. That's where we first met. It's my pleasure uh, to welcome you today. Um, please start by introducing yourself in terms of what are the other interesting things you've been doing. Well, uh, thank you for doing this, Anar. It's uh, good to see you in Washington, D.C. again. As you said, I've been teaching at George Washington University for 40 years. Um, I did my studies at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign. I started off studying engineering and then broadened that to a five-year program where I got two degrees at the end of five years, one in engineering, one in liberal arts and sciences. And then I went on uh, with the social sciences in graduate school and ended up with a PhD in communications. The, uh, the communications program at the University of Illinois had three tracks. You could choose a behavioral approach, cultural approach, or a formal cybernetics approach. And I chose cybernetics. So my degree was in cybernetics, you could say. And I studied with Heinz von Forster. Uh, he was an Austrian physicist who came to the United States after World War II. And he was director of the Biological Computer Laboratory, which uh, I didn't know at the time, but it turned out that was the center for cybernetics research in the United States during the time that I was there, uh, which was the late 60s and early 70s. And then when I graduated with my PhD, I looked around for a job and they were looking for somebody to teach system science and cybernetics uh, in the business school at uh, George Washington University. So I applied for that job and I got it. So I ended up in a business school, although I had never studied business. And I ended up over the years in teaching almost every course in the Department of Management, um, operations, research, quantitative methods, uh, organizational behaviors, strategic planning, system cybernetics, philosophy of science, research methods. And that's what I've spent my career doing. And I've uh, been active in the fields of system science and cybernetics during that time. Mm -hmm. And that is um, very interesting because what we do in management school usually is mostly involved with the corporations, with the working with people. And a lot of the professionals in the field would be questioning what is cybernetics and how does it relate to my job and to management in general? Because I think the terminology may have have changed and uh, when people even think about cybernetics the first thing they might recall is to do something with the cyber cyber security or something virtual so can you explain to our audience how can you uh, use cybernetics and how is it different from all these other fields sure the um, most people do associate cybernetics with computer science or artificial intelligence the idea was invented by Norbert Wiener, uh, who was an MIT professor, a mathematician. And um, the word cybernetics is the Greek word for governor. 
And what they were looking for at the time, which was in the 1940s, was a word that would encompass all regulatory activity, whether it occurs in uh, human beings, in social systems, or in machines. So they set off to study regulatory activity or management activity, if you will, as human beings and organizations do it, formulate principles, and then use those principles to design machinery. And that work was done in the 1940s uh, as part of World War II. Uh, one of the projects that people worked on was the radar-guided anti-aircraft gun. So the idea is you, you use radar to track an airplane and you use a machine to aim the gun and fire at the plane in order to shoot the plane down. And that project was successful. Uh, the, the equipment was installed on ships in the Pacific during World War II. But there were many other uh, activities. Uh, cybernetics has been associated with um, that. That's sometimes called the duck under problem. And the reason it was interesting was because it operated more in the information domain. See. Previously, engineering had been in the matter and energy domain, where you build machines that um, will replace human muscle power. But in this case, they were building a machine that would replace human cognitive capability to aim a gun and so forth. Uh, and Norbert Wiener called that the second industrial revolution. So the first industrial revolution was to build machines that would replace human muscle power, and the second industrial revolution was to build machines that would replace human intellectual power. That's mostly computers and robotics. So it was a very popular field in the 1950s, and then it sort of faded away uh, later as uh, a lot of the work was done in the fields of computer science, electrical engineering, and so forth. But those who had a broad, general, theoretical interest continued to use the term cybernetics because they were searching for principles to govern information machines as opposed to machines that would operate with matter and energy. I think of cybernetics as being sort of parallel to physics, where physics creates principles about matter and energy interactions. Cybernetics creates principles about control and communication. So it's the information domain as opposed to the material domain. That's the way I have continued to think about it over the years. Okay. So for the audience of this podcast who are mostly working and working professionals in the field of management, let's say leaders, and in general, I think for any human being, communication is the number one skill to survive and thrive in personal and professional lives. So as a communications specialist and a scientist from cybernetics, what are the main principles to use to have a successful communication or, and also to create favorable an environment for communication where everyone can contribute and also being treated fairly and have a voice? Okay, well, there are three models that people in cybernetics use. So I'll just describe those briefly. The first one is based on the law of requisite variety. This is a principle formulated by Ross Ashby, one of the founders of the field of cybernetics. He said that uh, every good regulator of a system must be a model of that system. And the regulator must have a variety equal to or greater than the variety in the system being regulated. So if you're driving a car and you're the driver of the car, you have to know about the position of the car, the speed of the car, and so forth, um, and use that information to control the car. If you're managing a firm, you have to understand what's happening in the firm, what people are doing in the firm, um, how they make decisions, etc. 
And uh, if you don't have that knowledge, you're not going to be a good manager. So it's, it's kind of obvious. You can formulate it as a quantitative principle. That is that the amount of decision making that can be performed is limited by the amount of information available. Not enough information and you don't get good decisions. Or second interpretation, the variety in the regulator must be at least as great as the variety in the system being regulated. An example would be a game. If you're playing, say, basketball or football, you have two players uh, or you have two teams with the same number of players on each team. If one team had more players, one would expect them to win. And usually they would because they could occupy more positions on the field than the team with fewer players. That would be an example of uh, the variety uh, and the regulator and the system being regulated. That's one principle and it is a quantitative principle that connects information and decision making. Surprisingly, it's not that well known. <laughs> Ashby wrote it in his book, Designed for a Brain, in 1952. But um, in the practice of business, a lot of the academic work tends to be more like journalism than like basic principles. So that would be one principle. Mm -hmm. A second principle, also from Ross Ashby, called the principle of self-organizing systems, you, rather than imagining two things, the regulator and the system being regulated, you imagine a system with many components or parts or players in that system. An example would be the employees in a company. And you want to reward them for their efforts. So you create an incentive system. And you may say, if, uh, if you sell a car, you get uh, a bonus. Okay, so you try to sell as many cars as you can to, to get your income up. Um, in that case, you'd set a set of rules, like sell a car, we'll pay you this much, or you can have a punishment, you know, break the law and we're gonna fine you this month. What you're doing is you're setting the rules of a game and people operate within the rules of that game. And as they do so, they move toward an equilibrium case. Either they are more active on behalf of the company or they avoid illegal activities. Those are self-organizing systems because people respond to incentives that are presented. Uh, you can also have the government uh, set rules for business activity. Pollute the environment, we'll fine you. So they try not to pollute the environment, etc. Now the third principle is called reflexivity. And this is a little bit more difficult. It's like self-organization, except that the people who make the rules are players in the system. So the player operates at two levels. And everybody will agree with this description, I think, that a manager of a firm will look at the firm, see how it's doing, make a decision of what needs to be done. Then he will act with the people in the organization to implement that decision then he'll step back or she will step back, look at what happened, uh, make adjustments. Well, I should have done more of this, less of that, make another decision and then act on that decision and then step back and look at it and so forth. So it's a circular process. It's a repeated process, but it operates at two levels. You're both observing and deciding and acting to implement and then observing and deciding. And it's reflexive because you're doing it over and over again and you're part of the system so that as you act, you're changing your mind about whether an action works or not and whether you need more of that action or not. So that's the notion of reflexivity. And it's a little bit more complicated because it operates on three logical levels, but almost any management problem can be described in terms of those three models. The first is regulation, where you have two elements, the regulator and the system being regulated. 
The second is a self-organizing system with many elements acting according to a set of rules and they go toward an equilibrium and the manager can set the rules of the game to cause the gamer to go this way or that way. And then the third is reflexivity where the people in the system are setting the rules or at least changing their own behavior and they are acting and regulating the system and many of the people in the system are doing that. As just as one example, an employee can decide to follow orders or not. And usually they do, but sometimes they say, well, no, I don't think that's a good idea. And then you have a decision to make. Do you explain to your boss that you think a, a different course of action would be better, or do you just go along with it and hope for the best, hoping the, the boss has a better understanding of the situation? Yes, that's a good example. And uh, another question around these three principles is, would you agree that three principles are contradicting each other? So in, in real life, there could only be space for one. That's the most realistic and uh, appropriate. Yes, well, Cybernetics is very much about conceptualization, okay? It's about how do you conceive of the system that uh, you have a problem, then how do you represent it? And when I was dealing with doctoral students and they would be trying to formulate a doctoral dissertation, I would say, come to me with a problem that interests you and I will give you three theories that you can use to deal with it. And I was thinking of these three models of these three things and and we would formulate the problem that they was they were interested in in terms of the each of those three models and you can use them on any management problem and uh so th the first step is conceptualization and, and there's a lot more i can say about that but the uh, how do you describe the system is the first step in solving any problem and then getting the people uh, together who can work on that particular conception. And many times what you want to do is to get many people to work together on formulating a description of the situation. Uh, it's not just one person describing it. You can have several descriptions of what needs to be done. So uh, just to make it more understandable and maybe useful. Do you have certain sets of problems that, for example, the regulatory first principle applies more often and set of examples that the second rule applies more often and etc. and the third rule? Uh, I haven't thought of it that way. Uh, I use all three of them frequently. Uh, uh, and repeatedly and and you can use all three of them on any particular problem that, that you're thinking about for example let's say you're uh, looking to hire some workers for a problem uh, you're going to need information on well you first you put an ad in the newspaper saying we want some people to work on this problem and so they send you their resume okay that gives you information so you look at the information they send you in their resume and you see, well, how, how well does that resume fit what we're looking for? That's the regulatory act where you're, you're matching up the description of the candidate and the description of the job. Right. And for yeah. that to be able to do effectively, you have to have more information about the job. Yeah. Uh, you have to, yeah. Well, you have to describe the job and then, um, and then after you find some people you think would be good, you interview them and you talk, okay, here's, here's what else you need to know about the job. And then you sort of negotiate and say, uh, is, do we think this is a good fit? After you have a group of people on board, then you can set the rules of how you want them to behave. You know, what your salary is gonna be, what the bonus system is gonna be, what the vacation, situation is, uh, et cetera. And that's the self-organizing system. Uh, you, you've designed that reward system, in a sense. 
And then in terms of reflexivity, after they've been on the job for a while and they know what's going on and people know each other and they know how to work with one another, then they will take charge of the situation and formulate their own problems, solve their own problems, work together. And as they do that, they will be studying the situation, making a decision, implementing the decision, stepping back, studying the situation. That's the reflexive process. So you can sort of trace the model that you use through the process of creating a management team and then having the team solve problems in the organization. Yeah, that's a great example, especially in this day and age where most of the problems and the entrepreneurial uh, ventures are are being done in collaborative way. Yes. So people have to come together, uh, work on the problem together, uh, find out the flaws, change their action, and go back to uh, working and uh, doing some more fine tuning. And uh, I remember from your classes, Deming's uh, quality improvement method is taking the same principle and applying it to improving quality. And uh, the lecture uh, given by George Soros was also talking about how there could be self-fulfilling prophecies where this principle makes you focus on something that you notice and you think it's a problem and you start taking action against the problem and, and that in itself can actually not improve the, uh, not destroy the problem, but rather amplify it. Do you know of any ways of, to avoid that uh, as a manager of that particular restaurant, for example? Well, over the years, as the quality movement spread in the United States, uh, uh, due to the work of Deming and others, uh, people use more surveys and nowadays you're often asked to fill out a survey form. What did you like about the hotel you stayed at? Uh, was the food good? What, was, was the waitress friendly, etc. Um, and people are seeking feedback. This is a basic cybernetic principle of feedback that you don't know how to act if you don't get feedback. So getting more feedback gives you more information that you need to improve your performance. And businesses have learned this and those that solicit feedback have, a, have more information on which to improve their performance. And so performance improves. I think that the improvements of, in businesses and government agencies and has improved uh, remarkably in the last few decades simply because of the fact that organizations understand the importance of feedback and um, collect it deliberately and then act on it. So it's uh, feedback is a very basic cybernetics principle. And in terms of collecting feedback, I think it's a really great thing. And um, nowadays it's, it became almost second nature for all the businesses. Uh, however, solving the problem might still be at a place where uh, people not necessarily know how to solve the problem that they found uh, through those surveys. And uh, fighting with the wrong thing is bad enough, but fighting with wrong tools, even if you're fighting the right thing, can be wrong and uh, is there any tool from cybernetics that can help us to eliminate those blind spots well the blind the blind spot is a very good example of um, uh, a basic principle from um, cognition and the biology of cognition that um, cyberneticians often refer to basically uh, you just need to experiment. If you take an experimental approach to management, that's a much better way than just uh, assuming 
that uh, you know how to solve the problem. Uh, if, if you know, if you think you know how to solve the problem and you act in such a way that you make the problem worse, ideally you will recognize the fact that things aren't improving and you will try something else. So um, taking, uh, having an experimental attitude and approach and then talking to people, obviously your employees, your customers, uh, you can hire consultants, um, talking to other people usually is the way we gather information about alternative approaches to the problem. Okay. Yes, that's great. So I feel like um, the gathering feedback and acting on it and a quality improvement process uh, and even agile um, uh, practices in project management they're all coming from cybernetics. And we should say thanks to cybernetics, we live in a, a, a more customer friendly environment now. Um, what are the other achievements uh, that you would uh, uh, claim that cybernetics brought to this world? Well, cybernetics does focus very much on cognition and communication and on being a, being more aware of communication. Uh, for example, there are three problems, I would say, that we have encountered recently, which I think we were slow to recognize. And the reason was that they were in the field of communication. For example, several years ago, attention was called to what was called the year 2000 computer problem. Uh, because computers were designed to minimize the number of digits on cars, cards. And then people sort of said, well, uh, this, these software programs aren't going to work when we hit the year 2000 because uh, they're, they're based on two digits and now we're going to have to deal with four digits. So on the one hand, everybody knew about the problem. On the other hand, nobody or many people were not thinking about the problem. So it sort of um, took us by surprise. And a lot of companies had to move very fast to change their equipment, buy new equipment, uh, update their equipment. And it caused a, um, a bulge in the stock market with people buying new equipment that they would not ordinarily have had to buy on, on a short-term basis. They, they should have bought it as, gradually over time as they went along. So the fact that it took us by surprise uh, and made a, a big bulge in the, um, in the stock market in terms of uh, people thought the, the whole world was going with electronics while they were just catching up with the year 2000 computer problem. And so that was one problem. Then there was the, uh, the 2016 election when we didn't fully understand how social media operated and how social media was being used and how social media could disturb an election. And so there have been investigations on uh, how different uh, political parties, different countries interfered in the US election by using social media. So once again, it was a communication issue, which we didn't know because it, uh, we didn't, fully anticipated because it was new. And uh, so it, we've struggled and I don't think we've mastered it yet, uh, how to deal with social media and, and uh, elections. And then another issue that people are talking about is the notion of cryptocurrencies, which once again is uh, an information or communication technology. One thing about it is it uses a lot of energy to update all of these um, accounts these simultaneous accounts. So we're moving into a communication age and we're being taken by surprise by some of these um, things that uh, we haven't seen before. And that's something that cybernetics can help us to understand because it, it does offer us a theory of information and control uh, it gives us theories of adaptation, of understanding, which we haven't had before. The example that you used first about the um, 2000 
computer problem and, and it creating a bulge at the stock market. Is that related to the tech bubble and the dot-coms or yes. that's a different one? Yes, no, it's, it's uh, very much the same thing. Uh, it, it happened at the end of the 1990s and then there was this overshoot and uh, everybody thought that, that tech was the new thing. Well, a lot of the demand for the new tech was just catching up uh, and, and replacing equipment that needed to be replaced uh, because of the date change. If, if we had had that in mind and bought new equipment along the way, there wouldn't have been such a large tech bubble. So we misunderstood what was going on. Right. We, we took the new technology uh, as something that is growing organically rather than mm -hmm. just because of the equipment change. Yeah, well, that it's, a lot of companies were doing. Yes, it um, obviously it was very new. Uh, computers and the internet and social media are very new and they grew very fast and a lot of people have made a lot of money, but part of it was that uh, people were catching up with an error in the software that uh, people knew about, but they weren't acting on it until they had to do it all at once. And I think it might be even related to the way a lot of startup and not even startup, they're already big multi-billion dollar companies that are tech related and that um, mostly are super valued because of their large base of users. And these users are not paying, uh, therefore, the company is not making a direct profit, but they are valued as very profit, uh, as very valuable with the multi-billion dollar valuations. What's your view on this? Is, is well, that's this another... real or is this something that can come crash down like in the tech bubble back in 2000s? Well, it's something that uh, once again, uh, we haven't had an accurate understanding of what was going on. Like, for example, if you, you get a free email service, you say, oh, great, you know, and then you add all your information onto your email account. And then the company that operates the email system sells that information to advertisers. And then they start collecting data on what you look at, what you buy, and that information makes advertising much more efficient so that the advertisers don't have to spend a lot, put a lot of ads in newspapers and magazines and television and so forth. They can directly target people who have already expressed an interest in a pair of shoes or a house or something like that. So it's much more efficient. And, uh, and we, haven't, at, we, we haven't understood the total process you know, we, we thought we were getting free email system. Great. Well, uh, it, it, it is monetized. And uh, so it's, it's that newness of the information domain that um, we're still learning about that's causing these misunderstandings. Right. And you said that the new age is about communications. So therefore economy now is becoming economy of attention. So where people put their attention and where they would receive communication and where they would give up their own data, that's, that's where the money is. Right. But um, my question around this is how sustainable is this model? Because right now, if you look at it, even the 2016 elections show that social media had a, a big power. So that's why valuations of uh, companies who have millions and millions of users are so high. Mm, but the question is how sustainable it can be. Is there a point where maybe people would decide I'd rather pay for my <laughs> own social media or I would pay for my email, but then I wouldn't uh, have to uh, share my data and etc. 
Yeah, well, it, um, it, it remains to be seen. Uh, uh, the regulatory framework uh, can change and there could be some trust busting or uh, demonopolization, uh, breaking up of some of the companies. Um, the people will just have to decide, um, uh, or the citizens, the public and government will have to regulate things and there will be some adjustments, I'm sure of it. Um, there's already uh, a great deal of talk about it, uh, but it's just an adjustment process. So the, uh, the big run up in, in values of these companies, uh, I would say has largely uh, occurred, but the media are spreading around the world. So there are lots of unconnected users still to be signed up. So, uh, how it works out, I don't know. It's um, it's it's a it's an old story in in the introduction of new technologies and new industries. And the interesting fact about it is that I think a lot of businesses would still want um, for this system to work the way it is because it really did simplify a lot of marketing and a lot of com communication with the customer directly, even getting feedback and improving their business. So in terms of businesses and in general customer experience, a lot of people I think would advocate for continuing this route, especially since they tell you that the data is aggregated and anonymized. Mm -hmm. So all these concerns have been covered. Um, However, there are other concerns that people have and, and those to be, uh, to be solved later on, I think. Um, and for the second example, I have a question in terms of elections for the 2020. If, uh, so in 2016, Trump won with the Republican party and uh, uh, he used a lot of social media and there have been some concerns about the foreign countries also being uh, part of it. However, uh, do you think it's possible that the other party, the Democrats, could use the same tool and win um, in the upcoming election? Oh, sure. Um, people uh, learn from one another and uh, they will use the new media in, in any way that they can. Uh, they're, they're trying to win elections. All, all political parties will be doing this. And I think one of the main things we've learned that it is that the new media make it possible for other countries and people outside a country to become involved in political campaigns. So that hasn't, I mean, we, we've had that kind of interference in the affairs of other countries, certainly with propaganda and so forth, but it's now a new, technology is available and it's being used. And so there are people who are saying we need to take steps to uh, block that kind of interference and other nations will also take steps to block interference. But um, if it's not blocked, then people will take advantage of the opportunity and interfere. So it's, it, it's a situation we have to adapt to. Yes, uh, unfortunately, I think, uh, the humanity is always the same and they would use whatever tools available. And uh, right now this seems to be one of the crucial tools to be present, to, to have the security and uh, to be able to defend your grounds uh, virtually. <laughs> so yeah. um, uh, we've covered quite a bit about how cybernetics can be applied in um, solving problems in management and businesses and, and societies. What else uh, do you think can be really very useful from the field? And uh, also, what are the new future innovations from the field of cybernetics that can revolutionize the, the field uh, or the applications of these principles? Well, the work that I've been doing has been concerned with the philosophy of science and our conception of science. And um, the, the notion that 
uh, our conception of science can be expanded to include observers. And see, it used to be that the conception of science was that the scientist was outside the system being observed. And so you could have objective science and scientists do try to be objective. They do try to be unbiased, but there's a limit to how much that can be achieved because uh, we all grow up uh, in a particular society and culture. We're influenced by our parents, by our schools, by our education, by the churches we go to. So we all have uh, biases. And although we try to minimize those, they're there. And we're becoming more aware of that. And so the assumptions that we used to make about science need to be modified somewhat. Uh, one is to take greater account of who it is that says something. Uh, for example, if you have uh, an advertisement in a political campaign and it comes from the Republican Party or the Democratic Party, it's useful to know what party that is coming from so that you can adjust your how much you believe in it depending upon the source of the information. Now that notion of, of modifying information has become a major issue uh, in science. Uh, for example, the big historical case was smoking and tobacco use, where the studies showed that smoking was bad for your health. Well, the tobacco companies didn't like that, so they generated their own scientific reports done by scientists employed by the tobacco companies. And they said, no, uh, smoking is not bad for your health. Uh, and now climate change is another case in which the oil companies and the, uh, and the coal companies are saying, no, no, there's no problem. You know, we're not affecting the, the climate and so forth. So this is happening repeatedly. It, it happens in the case of nutrition and food that if one study says that this food is not good for you then the people that make the food say no it's fine it's not a problem so this notion of bias and lack of objectivity when people have an interest in the product or the service has become very very visible in recent years and that's because the objectivity of observers, scientists, or corporations, we've lost faith in it uh, relative to what we had in the past. And so being more aware of the biases that are inherent, people creating the information is a step forward. Another issue is that there is an interaction between ideas and society. Like if you advertise a product and people rush out to buy it, well, that's what the manufacturer wanted, but that's changing the way the world is. So the interaction between ideas and society is something we understand much better now than we did a few decades ago. So our conception of science is changing. Our sensitivity to messages is changing. We're becoming more alert and reflective on how we interpret information. So I think that that's something that definitely is an adjustment that we're going to have to make is that uh, we'll be more sensitive to information and communication and scientific reports, more attentive to how the research is done, who does the research, uh, whether the research results are repeated, and several people have found the same results. That's all very much important because with climate change and nutrition and so forth, these issues are becoming more important and uh, people are paying more attention to them. So we had a great discussion about how people are becoming more sensitive to biased information or the information source. And uh, as, as a social media user myself, right now I'm seeing that if you're connecting with a, a public figure or um, 
a politician or even a brand on social media and you see their everyday life, you, you see what they do, where they went on vacation, you sort of build that kind of a personal core and a connection where I think that's why social media is so powerful because then people become biased and they start trusting whoever it is online that they're following or they're uh, friends with and maybe they have never met. Uh, but they start trusting any information, any research issued by that type of person. And uh, there is no guarantee it's true, but the, I think this is how a lot of marketing, a lot of propaganda can be used without much of uh, obstacles because now you have these people who are your tribe who who like what you do who like you in general uh, and then there that filter trying to understand whether this is a legitimate source of information or not kind of tumbles down and this type of a personal approach i don't know if it's in the scope of cybernetics uh, but uh, can you give us some principles that can be applied on a personal level, like a psychology level that uh, cybernetics can bring? Yeah, I've encountered this uh, and with the young people I've been talking to, they seem to, uh, they seem to have difficulty deciding if a source of information is a legitimate source of information. And I think part of the problem is that they're just many, many more sources of information than we had before. Anybody can issue a news release and uh, set up a, uh, a newspaper and so forth and call it a newspaper. It used to be you had to own printing presses and have staff and so forth. And now you can, everybody can use their home computer to, uh, to generate these stories. And many of the stories are um, purely fictitious. Um, and th there has been a, a, a positive feedback loop, a reinforcement loop in these things where um, like Google and Facebook and so forth, they, uh, if, if you create a story and you put it on your website and people click on it, then you get some money and Google gets some money from ads. So people are actually earning a living by generating these false stories, which they write as if they are true, and they're rewarded if many people click on it. So they make outrageous statements. Uh, an example was this um, pizza parlor in Washington, DC, where somebody said there were children being abused in the basement or something like that. And some guy comes in with a rifle and he fires a shot. Well, there was nothing going on but it was on media and so people believe it. And, uh, and that kind of false stories creates a sense of anxiety in people that, you know, the, the world is going crazy. Why are, why are these things happening? Well, people are just making up stories and, and they write about them as if they're true, but there's no truth in them at all. But they get money by doing that. And they have networks of friends and say, I'll click on mine if you click on, on yours. And some of these stories are written by people in other countries. And so this is one of the ways that you disrupt uh, the political climate in a country is that you just flood the social media with these fake news stories. And that's extremely disruptive and it's, it's very anxiety promoting. It's very irritating. And so people have to learn how to check their news sources. For example, if you see a news source from a newsletter with a particular name, I don't know, the ABC news source, you can look up the ABC news source with a, a, a web search and people will evaluate, well, this, this is, you know, um, a fake news source or uh, it's, they're full of conspiracy theories or something like that. You say, okay, well, <laughs> that's what I thought. It looked, didn't look right, you know. Uh, so you have to approach these things with a skeptical attitude. You have to do a little background research. Ideally, these things will be regulated. They're beginning to be regulated. 
a little bit more uh, and sites are being taken down and so forth. But uh, there's still an awful lot of very, very false, alarming stuff that's coming up through not only social media, but radio programs and so forth that is creating a very unpleasant and almost threatening environment uh, in the society. And that's something we need to work on. Uh, right. That, that's the, um, it just reminded me about the society and its three forms where it goes from a highly regulated totalitarian to an open society and then to a chaos where everything is allowed. No. But that's the, I think the hardest part is to strike the balance and, yeah, I mean, uh, that's a and know how much is enough for regulation because I'm sure the official media sources have certain uh, ethics code and the standards that they abide that prevent people from writing false stories. And uh, yeah. the, the, the establishment media has to protect its reputation because if they get a reputation for getting the information wrong, then they're gonna lose subscribers. If they lose subscribers, they're gonna lose advertisers and so forth. But if you're just putting messages on uh, social media, you don't have those concerns. In general, the, the media, the way they portray stories sometimes can be alarming because it's definitely not uh, proportioned to statistics because the media covers the most shocking, the most yeah. fascinating stories that will grab attention of their audience to, again, get advertising money from the, uh, from the marketing budgets that they have. Therefore, this is not regular life that they're showing because that they're, they are attuned to things that are out of ordinary to show people what's happening. And uh, that's why it's so anxiety inducing. Thank you so much for sharing so many interesting principles and showing how cybernetics applies in the real world. And oh, we wish you a great success in further development of the cybernetics principles and spreading the word. Can you tell us about maybe some sources or some conferences that you organize and attend that people who have interested in it can reach out to you and also to participate in those events and activities? Sure. There's an American Society for Cybernetics. There's also an International Society for the System Sciences, which is a neighboring field. There are Wikipedia pages about cybernetics and uh, the law of requisite variety and so forth. So there, and there are books and academic journals about cybernetics and system science. So there's a lot of information available. If one uses the normal means, the internet is a good source where you can just check by keywords and so forth. And these societies have hold annual conferences. There are many times local chapters of uh, people with those interests who meet regularly, usually about once a month. There are not as many college courses in the United States as there are in other countries. These fields of system science and cybernetics seem to be more popular, in, particularly in Europe, uh, than in the United States. Uh, I guess we um, pursue these things more under the uh, label of computer science or systems engineering or something like that. Um, but there are sources available and there's lots of information that you can find. Okay, thank you. It was a thank pleasure you. to yes. talk with you.